Hello, everyone out there in cyberspace. This is Dan Hassan, and I am with Corey Doctorow. Um, this is the first in a series um, called Dark Crystal Diaries, where we'll be speaking to friends, peers, and advisors connected to the Dark Crystal project. Um, Corey, I'm not going to use the precious time that we have to introduce you. I think um, the typical audience for this are all going to know um, who you are, but in the show notes, I will link out to a recent show that you did with um, Jamie King on Steal This Show, which I think is probably a good primer for this. Yep. Um, so the shorthand of how we've come to be on this call is uh, Corey and I have a mutual friend, uh, Emily James, who has connected us both. Um, so Corey, um, at first when I um, reached out to you, um, I think the way that I framed the project, it was kind of based in the history of cryptocurrencies and you're pretty well documented as being um, a skeptic on of kind of a lot of the blockchain hype. Um, and uh, I think I mispitched Dark Crystal to begin with, but it's really um, uh, good that I did, I think, because we've come through to the other side to something um, where you have agreed to kind of consider working with us a bit more. So I'm just going to read um, something from Walkaway, which uh, the reason being is it's right at the kernel, the seed of um, why I was interested in speaking with you. Um, and that is from Kindle page 510. Um, there's plenty of crypto weenies trying to figure this out, using shared secrets to split the key into, say, 10 pieces such that any five can be used to unlock the file. Do you remember writing that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and so I'm super interested um, in the conversations that would have led into uh, kind of that arc within Walkaway kind of coming out. Um, was that stuff that was of interest to you um, through your own reading or uh, do you know, as you put it, uh, a number of crypto weenies? Well, a little of both. And and really, you know, the, the thing that got me thinking about... Um, how you would intentionally share your data with trusted parties uh, after you were no longer able to control it, like after you were dead, was that a very dear friend of mine and a technologist who I grew up with, uh, a guy named Eric Stewart, who went by Possum Man, uh, died in a, of a freak brain aneurysm when he was in his early 40s, literally just went to bed one night and never woke up. And in a lucky stroke for all of us, he had left his computers on with his encrypted disks all mounted uh, and no screen lock. And I went over and plugged a terabyte hard drive in and captured all of his data and re-encrypted it and stuck it in an Amazon um, uh, glacier locker and prepaid for 10 years of storage for his parents until they could figure out what to do with this data. And, you know, around that same time, I think it was my friend Charlie Strauss mentioned that by such and such a year, 2020 or 2030, some, some pretty soon year, the majority of internet users would be dead, right? The majority of people who'd ever use the internet would be dead. Uh, and their data footprints would be all over the internet. And, you know, also around that same time, my friend Aaron Swartz hanged himself uh, as after he'd been hounded by U.S. federal prosecutors uh, for downloading scientific articles from MIT's network. Uh, and he had a very prolific data footprint that his friends struggled to figure out what to do with. 
And there was also around that time a cryptographer who was driving back from a crypto conference. I don't know his name because I, I only saw the presentation by his friend the next year. But he and his wife were in a car wreck that killed him. And being a cryptographer, all of his data was really, really well encrypted. And he'd never figured out any kind of secession plan. So all of those things got me thinking. And, you know, I have a data will that explains what I would like done with my data and also how to access all my data. Um, and, you know, there are master passwords needed to get that. And that master password has been split into two pieces that I hand wrote on slips of paper. And I gave half of it to a lawyer in San Francisco. It's actually sitting about 50 yards from where I am right now. And the other half to a lawyer in London on the theory that it would be much harder to compel disclosure from uh, lawyers in two different jurisdictions than it would be for one. Uh, along with the instructions about when I'd like them that that stuff turned over to my wife or or someone else if I were incapacitated or dead or whatever, and and thinking about all of that and how thorny that problem is and um, how potentially compromising it is to trust third parties with access to all of your data while you're alive and how potentially terrible it is for your loved ones not to be able to access your data after you're dead. And trying to figure out how to how to strike a balance between those two tensions, that was something that I, I really have been thinking about a lot. Um, when I asked that question, I kind of, um, that quote that I started, started off with um, was enough to kind of spear uh, around 10 of us, uh, at times more, kind of off on this uh, year or two-year journey, kind of delving deeper into that problem. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that you... The, the story that you've just relayed is so rich. Um, I'm really sorry about the tragedy studied nature of it, but um, I think that kind of what you've highlighted is something that any person who maintains um, uh, a relationship with the internet, whether they think about it or not, this is going to come up in some shape or form. Um, and so at the heart of um, Dark Crystal was the question of, although it was slightly orthogonal, it was um, how, when we say peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer, um, who are the peers that we're considering? Um, because the although blockchain is one subset, it's one of the ones which has been getting a lot of hype and airtime. But typically the composition of people is not super diverse, um, and so the beginning of the project was figuring out what would it mean to um, expand who gets to be a peer in these peer-to-peer systems. And I should shout out to uh, Jaya Clara Breck, um, who in the uh, Money Lab reader, I think three postcards from the future, kind of um, uh, was one of, uh, who is also one of our advisors, actually. I should get her on to say this stuff in her own words. But that kind of um, figuring out who gets to be a peer in peer-to-peer systems when you're focusing on that custody problem, it really quickly gets into the realm of um, how do you securely pass data across transformations, so be it death or incapacitation, or if you're crossing a border and um, your stuff gets seized or other such, um, has been a problem that probably we could spend a whole number of um, years on. Um, and uh, one of the things that really inspired me about the way that you wrote about um, Shamir's secret sharing um, was it was so closely mapped to the relationships of the characters in the story. Um, and what I really liked about the novel or that uh, uh, 
theme in the story was how it was, although it was a deeply tech, technological question, it was kind of the technology needed to get out of the way and figure out how the humans would do it in any case. Um, and I know that's something that feature of walk away, um, this notion of kind of um, human relationships um, amplified um, by technology is a theme that's really inspired a lot of the scuttlebutt folk. Um, have you, I know that you've written about scuttlebutt before. Have you um, like tried it out? Have you looked at it? Um, no. Has anyone around you showed it? Or Yeah, no, I don't have anyone to scuttlebutt with. This is the problem with um, social technologies. Yes. Okay. So um, there's a current emergent way of trying to understand those kind of people-centered technologies as um, being less, less about trying to make people do things in a computer way and more thinking about how can we make computers mimic the way that people do things. So one of the problems that we had at the beginning of the what was the genesis of the Dark Crystal project was um, to get people access to these systems, you needed to teach people password managers. Um, and I don't know if you know this uh, about, uh, statistically speaking, about between, I think, 17 or 18% of Bitcoins that have ever been um, or ever will be generated, statistically speaking, look like they've kind of been lost. Um, and so I've got this kind of small, um, and by that I mean uh, you would expect some small fraction of a larger holdings to have been moved or sold off during peaks or changes in price. And there's like whole um, tranches of coins which just haven't moved in a super long time. So the speculation is that they've been lost. And so kind of uh, I extrapolate from that and go, well, if you can't pay people to learn how to use password managers securely, then it's highly unlikely that people less incentivized will be able to. Um, and so if at the core of um, uh, managing our data more securely, it's going to rely on password managers, then we're kind of screwed. Um, although this isn't me saying don't use them, I, th I think they're super important. But the thing that I really like about the arc within Walkaway is this sense that um, I do think that people are able to um, problem solve things like, okay, I have my apartment um, and uh, who would I leave my key with in case I lose my wallet and my keys? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of a much more human um, thing, which I think most people um, can do to some degree. So essentially we're thinking about who do I trust, how much and for how long. Um, so in your travels, um, with the, uh, experiences that you've had that made you think about that stuff, has anyone else come and spoken to you since that kind of theme within the book, or have you kind of learned about any other projects in that realm that have kind of, um, added some wrinkles to the tale? Well, the thing that comes to mind is a presentation I recently saw at the Swiss Cyberstorm conference where... The Googler who's in charge of their um, password recovery and anti-phishing uh, talked about how um, the system relies on a whole bunch of heuristics that are not uh, either the things that, you know, your stupid bank asks you where they're like, we're looking at your credit report. Can you tell me what uh, that, you know, how much you spent last week on Amazon 
as a way of validating you, but instead like a bunch of stuff like, which of these six people do you know? Uh, or, um, you know, which, which of these four cafes did you go to the last time you were in Berlin? Um, which, you know, creepy that they know all that shit. But at the same time, it does, it does look a lot more like how we might authenticate a person. And, you know, in some ways, these are all just shibboleths, right? Like things that are, that can only be pronounced by, uh, the trusted parties and that the untrusted parties can't pronounce. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that, um, oftentimes shibboleths can lead us astray that we often, uh, assume that they're harder to forge than they, than they turn out to be. I mean, think of all those green activists in the UK who got fooled by, you know, coppers who, who grew out dreadlocks and learned to speak like, like anti third runway types. And then, you know, who then went on to like impregnate some of them. Um, but, but, you know, as an adjunct to, or as, as, as something that it maybe is computationally managed and, and has maybe some calculable complexity or, or, you know, that can be, um, thought of against a large data set and, and you can say, well, what is the proportion of people in this, you know, huge leaked data set that we have who would have been made secure by the deployment of a given shibboleth, then maybe we can, we, maybe we can do some, you know, at scale automated versions of this stuff. Um, and that's something that um, in my research around this stuff, I was like, what does already exist? And I think in 2000, People love to rag on Facebook and a lot of the time with good reason. But I think like I often wonder what it's like in the belly of the beast when you've got these wicked smart people mm-hmm. um, kind of thinking about this stuff. And in 2011, um, I'm going to screw up the names because it's not that much in my brain, but it's something like trusted contacts um, where essentially it's the same thing. Uh, if someone's lost their phone, access to their email and they can't remember their password, and they don't want to provide identification to some unknown person within Facebook, then you can, uh, in your settings, set up trusted contacts where as long as you can remember one of them um, when you've forgotten your password, then uh, those five, three to five people that you've identified get sent a code and then you're meant to be able to uh, ring them out of band, so uh, on the phone or whatever. Um, and what's interesting is in my, since learning about that, I've tried to find people who have used it. And within these centralized contexts, what I found is uh, often people don't. Um, it's not often nowadays that people kind of lose phone and email and are unwilling to show ID. Um, however, in these P2P systems, there is no Facebook Um there's no person that you can go back. So we're kind of left with not many of the centralized options. Um, neat. Okay. Um, so, so I wonder, you know, as a security measure, how hard it would be if you had a big data set of trusted, um, uh, of, of trusted uh, uh, third parties or trusted, you know, fallback people, how hard it would be to figure out who those people were. Um and maybe suborn them. And, you know, it's this, it's because we have these weird threat models on the internet that are things like ransom threat, you know, like the half smart ransom threat model, which is, um, you know, the dumb ransom threat model is I just hijack anything I can and then ask for ransom. Right. And that's how you get like idiots hijacking NHS hospitals and asking for $300 to unhijack them, you know? Um, but the half smart one is 
I have like an opportunistic attack where I can look at a huge data set of leaked accounts or, or, you know, some other big, big leaked breached data set. And then I can sort it by some field that will tell me who's worth fucking. And then I can then go to those people and do the legwork necessary to figure out who their trusted third parties are. And I can fish those people. And I, I wonder, like, if that wouldn't create a bunch of, of really chewy, complicated security problems. I mean, one of the things that's in Walkaway is that they're skeptical of, the, of, of Shamir's secrets, in part because complexity is the enemy of good security. And, you know, having this kind of ever-expanding cloud, this, like, geometrically expanding, expanding cloud of I trust you and these nine other people, any five of them, and they all have their own list of ten with any five. And, you know, figuring out, like, is there is there, like, six of them you could roll up and, like, suborn and then get access to a whole ton of stuff? Like, it's a it's a, a very complicated and difficult question, and I think it's fun to do thought experiments with, but it's the kind of thing that before you ever ask anyone to entrust something to, that's the kind of thing that you'd really want red teams to, to look at. Because I know that, um, you know, in the aggregate, our social behavior is a lot more deterministic than we think it is, particularly if you only care about one or two sigmas, right? If you just want to compromise, if you say that within any 4 million people that, that you are compromisable, there'll be 200 that are really worth compromising, then, which seems to me like kind of as a rule of thumb, like a pro- probably like a pretty conservative estimate, then um, there is then like asking yourself whether you could get 200 account thefts out of a breach set of 4 million, which is a small breach set, uh, by doing, um, you know, essentially by doing the equivalent of checking to see whether anyone's password is password, right? Whether anyone's like fallback is their mom, their wife, their dad, and their boss, you know, uh, then I I worry that it, it, it creates a very compromisable environment. And one of the, um, other themes, which I've just, um, heard as well is kind of do we know what we're getting ourselves in for um so it's this what does consent mean in the field of new and unknown so in version one of um dark crystal it was uh once we knew what the problem was that we were experimenting with the first version was um is the non-ideal kind of hacky get it as close to something as possible the side effect of um, the side effect of that is that at the moment you can essentially implicate or um, others in the project would say you'd ideally speak to people before um, sending off to them. Um, but essentially, you can send people secrets without necessarily, in a programmatic way, um, garnering consent from them. Mm-hmm. And so this opens up um, uh, a whole kind of ethical question of. Yeah, do people know what it is that they're um, getting themselves in for? A related project that I've come by, which is connected to, I've forgotten which um, uni it came out of. Um, It's a woman, Erin and Ian Goldberg, I think, forget which um, university, but I I saw it pop up in on the um, open privacy um, Sarah, Jamie, Lewis, have, have they ever popped up on your radar? No, um, open I don't privacy. Um, they're 
they're rad. I want to get to know them more. But anyway, so this side project was called Scatter Secrets, which was um, coming at it from the angle of if you're trying to move across borders um, where there's a probability of your devices being taken from you and you're trying to um, bring documents with you. Um, it's essentially this notion of, it's called scatter secrets, I think. Um, I can't remember if they've got a working app, but essentially you split those um, secrets out to people, cross the border, and then reassemble on the other end. And PEG within our projects, like, hey, that's super neat, but if you um, have documents that are worth the trouble of identifying who those six people are, um, that's not great news. Yeah. Um, so I guess these are questions similar to what happened um kind of post Snowden is he would have initially reached out to Glenn Greenwald, then connected out to Misha to see if he could help um, get um, Laura Poitos up and running with GPG. But the, the thing is, he couldn't say, oh, by the way, um, you're, if you accept this, you're going to implicate yourself in something really big. Yeah. Um, and so it's this thing of, uh, at a smaller scale, um, how do we build this in a consentful way so that people have time to think this stuff through? I think that there's another um, another uh, inverse of that threat model that is worth thinking about. So I once, as a thought experiment, proposed that you could create like 10 passphrases for your encrypted disk uh, using just a, a strong password generator. So they'd just be random 128 character strings. And you would obviously not know any of those strings, but you'd have your regular disk unlocking password that's just a long password. And the threat that I was, or the, the thing I was trying to accomplish is you want to go somewhere with your computer and you trust that when you're not at a border, there's some rule of law, but you also think that when you're passing through a border, the rule of law is suspended, which, you know, is it, it's a pretty good description of a lot of places. There are some places where the rule of law doesn't apply even when you're past the border. Uh, and I think we don't, always know where those places are. I mean, that guy who just got hauled into parliament and made to log into his Dropbox account to give up some Facebook documents is an interesting example of how what you might think of as your rights outside of the border are, are not your rights. But, you know, stipulate for the sake of argument that you could at least call a lawyer and argue about whether or not you have to turn over your password once you're clear of the border, but not once you're in the border, not while you're in the border, and you want to get some work done. Right. And so you want to bring your laptop, you want to use it on the plane, you want to use it on the other side. Um, and so you have these 10 passwords and you get in the cab to go to the airport. And um, the first password in the list is your memorable password. And you type it in and you work all the way to the airport and then you delete the password. And now you can't log into your laptop. You go through customs and you call your roommate and you say, tell me what the first encrypted password is. And you type it in and change it to your memorable password. Get on your plane to say Singapore on your way to Australia. Uh, get off the plane at Singapore, delete the, your memorable password again. Now you can't log into your laptop, go through customs, buy a smoothie, sit down in, a, in the departure lounge and call your friend and say, give me password number two. And then you enter password number two and you, you know, work again on the plane. And then when you are landing in Sydney, you delete your password, you go through customs. When you get out of customs on the other side, you call your friend and you say, unlock it. You do it all in reverse on the way home. And so in theory, this works really well because your friend is outside of the coercive force of the state. And so long as you're right about where it is, the state can coerce you. So long as it's only at borders, then you're, then you're in really good shape. And I mentioned this to a friend, actually the lawyer who's sitting 100 yards from me who has my password in case I drop dead. 
And she said, oh yeah, they'll just arrest you and call your friend. And they'll say, if you ever want to see Corey again, you better give me his password. And so this is another way that people can be coerced, right? They can be coerced, not just like by being put to risk, but by being made to decide whether or not you can be a free man, right? Uh, and that's like, that's an incredible conundrum to plunge someone else into non-consensually or even consensually. It's a, it's a very tough thing. Um, yeah, that's, um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of things in relation to that, I guess. So, um, one of the things I'm feeling is one, do we know what we're, so in, in your simplified example, it's one person. Um, so let's keep it at one, although uh, it could be 10 or whatever, um, um, making it more complex. So the thing is, as you're passing through the border, you as an individual, they'd say, what's, what's the password? And you're like, haha, I can't, I don't know it. I can't actually tell you. Um, and they're like, well, you wouldn't just be carrying around this hunk of machinery as a, uh, like paperweight. Um, so how is it? And so in that scenario, we're assuming, uh, it would get to a point where you revealed that there would be someone who could help, um, get that through. And so what's happening in this instance is you've moved from being an individual to kind of part of um, a small group of people. And what you're essentially, um, what I'm hearing you worry about is, are people ready to essentially be responsible to each other, um, even in gnarly situations? Mm -hmm. um, and so to loop back around to the beginning of kind of the Dark Crystal project, I guess one of the gambits was, um, at, it feels like at the heart of a lot of um, kind of the more libertarian end of the spectrum of cryptocurrencies is this notion that um, at the end point of society is this kind of rational, informed, logical individual. And that the price of entry into these systems is that rational, logical individual is able to keep data secure and yes it's a hard problem but um if uh, someone is kind of an activated human then they will be able to figure that out um now i'm not in that camp of people i'm more in the camp of people of the end point of society isn't individuals it's individuals within relation to other people who make up kind of um uh, groups of various kind of strengthly knitted um, social fabric and so a part of me feels that probably in terms of technology and data and these types of things that sounds like although a thorny problem maybe one that's good for us humans to be thinking about in the times coming ahead um, things which make us think about how technology can strengthen and amplify our social fabric and kind of get us to level up in that kind of walk away sense. Yeah. Um, was really, yeah, was really at the heart of the gambit at the heart of um, um, Dark Crystal, which was that it's possible to reconfigure the, some of the component parts of within um, cryptocurrencies in a way that's more social, that kind of doesn't amplify alienation as I find cryptocurrencies can tend towards. Um, rather um, a way of using technology to um, strengthen social fabric. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is knowing how to weather storms mm -hmm. together. Because when I think of um, uh, Aaron Schwartz, like 
his footprint isn't just digital, it's also the relationships which have carried his memory and kind of mission forward um, as well. Like he, he, he wasn't just this, the brilliant, um, he wasn't just a brilliant individual, though he was that. Um, to kind of hear what, where I'm coming from. So basically what I'm saying TLDR is, yes, I agree with um, your analysis that that is a problem. Um, but I think it's probably the right type of problem. It's in the right neighborhood, in the right direction for us to be so, figuring out together. Let me see if I can make the point that I'm trying to make crisper here. So the, the, um, there is a class of countermeasures that networks enable where you relieve someone of the risk of coercion by taking the thing that the coercive force wants and moving it out of their hands, moving it out of the jurisdiction of the person who's trying to coerce them. And that is a powerful and, uh, and useful tactic, but it has its own countermeasures. And so a good example of this, we have a client here at the Electronic Frontier Foundation who in the court records is called Mr. Kadane. And he's an Ethiopian national. He's a dissident journalist who lives in exile in Washington, D.C. And the Ethiopian government bought a, a zero-day hacking tool to break into his Skype from a now disgraced and collapsed Italian company called Hacking Team. And they broke into his Skype in Washington, D.C. from Addis Ababa. And they mined his list of contacts in Addis Ababa, the people who were giving them the material he needed to publish uh, anonymously sourced devastating reports on corruption in the government. And they rounded up all of his friends in Addis Ababa and tortured them. And so the, the, the technology that giveth the power for someone who is out of harm's way to be a proxy or fiduciary for someone who is, un, who is at risk is also the power for the person at risk to be held hostage to the person who is playing the fiduciary. And there's two models for how you arrive at your fiduciary, right? One is through a kind of legal duty and the rule of law. So you have lawyers who you trust and those lawyers are, uh, or a fiduciary of some other kind, and that they are bound by a pro, pro, uh, code of professional conduct and maybe even given special legal powers like the power to resist certain um, uh, uh, orders to compelling them to show evidence like an attorney-client privilege. Um, and so you trust them because you trust that the rule of law is intact. And that only that has a weakness in that the rule of law is not always intact. And the rule of law is a lot more contingent than we'd like it to be. And it's particularly contingent on the whims of powerful people. And that is a trend that is accelerating. In part, I think we should note because cryptocurrency is letting oligarchs launder money. Um, and then the other model for this is you have someone you love and trust who you think would never betray you. Uh, and you're not relying on the rule of law, you're relying on these human factors. But those those human factors are the very human factors that you then get turned against you when someone kidnaps your wife or husband or kid or whatever and says, tell me what their password is or they're never getting out of jail. And so they both have their weaknesses and like a lot of, well, I think like all security measures, they have to be deployed against a threat model that correctly assesses what risk you are going to be put to and by whom. And so if you use fiduciaries where the rule of law is weak, then you, you will be exposed. And if you use loved ones where, um, you, you know, the, your, your counterparty understands 
uh, the, the rule of law is strong, but your counterparty understands that, you know, your friend in back in a safe place has no rights as to, to, to stop them from torturing you, uh, then you're also exposed. And so uh, assessing the, the threat is really important to understanding the countermeasure. So what's loud and clear is, um, and this is earlier what you meant by um, do good red team analysis. So essentially threat modeling, figuring out specifically what the different constraints are and then working um, with those in mind with the understanding that um, there's no such thing as perfect security and... Um, Well, it's not there's just there's of, no such thing as perfect security. It's that security is only is only ever secure as against an attack, right? I mean, you can have perfect flood security, but it won't stop your house from burning down. Um, and sure. and so uh, it's it's always and security is also always relative. Uh, you know, like like um, bank robbers are more secure when bank vaults are less secure. Uh, so there, there's, you know, the, the, there's, it always, it is always relative to a person and always relative to the, to the threat that person fears. Um, and, and it's just, it just doesn't the, like, there isn't, there isn't a shadow on Plato's wall that says security over it. There's only security in context. Very true. Um, Corey, as I suspected would happen, um, my brain's fully saturated from having bounced this uh, off your brain, which was um, in part the hope. Um, I know you have loads of calls lined up after this. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm good. Do you have any questions? No, I, I, I this was a really Let's interesting discussion. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I guess what I, what I would like to say is that I don't mean for any of this to be discouraging. Um, you know, oftentimes when we start with, with an idea, it can seem like there are some really big problems that turn out not, never to materialize or that have solutions that are also in place. But like part of the idea, part of the process of ideating a new security system is also to think about how it can be, how it can be hacked. And oftentimes the way it can be hacked is, is the way you make it stronger. Right, it's it's where you discover new and better ways of of making the security uh, robust against different kinds of attacks, um, and so yeah, I'm I'm interested in seeing what you guys come up with. I mean, I think that um that like maybe taxonomizing threat models would be a useful next step, and just just having some like user stories that are based on real things. I mean, Mr. Kadane, Ed Snowden, there are a bunch of people out there who have these these high risk environments. And also like the opportunistic attacks, the kind of ransomware dum-dums um, and, and what they might do against this kind of thing too. That's all super. Um, thank you. So we've got um, uh, a residency coming up at, with the Simply Secure folk in Berlin in a couple of weeks time where I think we're going to be running through a bunch of this stuff. So I'm going to listen back to this, make some notes, and then uh, speak to some more people, um, and then go from go from there. Yeah. Well, good luck with it. It's been really nice chatting. Yes. Yes. And uh, hope you have a good day and can fit in some coffee in between your next call. Yeah, that'd be nice. All yeah. right. Thanks for making the time. Okay. Nice talking to you. Bye.